Hey, welcome to First Church Live. So glad you guys are with us. And we have family joining us from all over the 918 and across the country. So if you guys here in person would, would you put your hands together? Give a warm and loud welcome to our online family. So glad you guys are joining us. So glad you guys are here. When I was in college, I had a roommate who kept one of these, a plastic gas can in the back of his car, in his trunk actually, and he carried this around full of gas all the time because he had a tendency to run out of gas. In fact, he ran out of gas a lot. Now, I'm not sure how safe that is to carry around a gas can like this with gas in it. I don't even know if it's legal, but he did it, and he did it all the time. And we asked him one time, I was like, why do you keep this gas can with you? Why don't you just fill up your car with gas when it starts to get low? And he's like, you know how it is. You get busy, you get going, you just don't think about it. Pretty soon you run out of gas, and it's always good to have a backup. Well, one night he came in kind of late, later than he normally did, and he got back to the dorm. And so I asked him, I was like, did something happen? What's going on? He's like, well, I ran out of gas. Well, that wasn't surprising because he ran out of gas all the time. So I wasn't shocked when he said that, but I was like, how come you didn't just use your backup can? He said, well, I forgot to fill up my backup can the last time I ran out of gas. So I had to walk like two miles to a gas station to fill it up in order to have enough gas to get back to the dorm. And I remember listening to him talk about that. I was thinking about that this week, and I thought, you know, I think on a spiritual level, that describes how a lot of us are. A lot of us are running on empty and we're not even paying attention to it. In fact, we don't even care. We just keep going and going and going and we're running on fumes, we're running on empty and we don't even realize it. And Jesus doesn't want us living that type of life. That's why we're in this series right now called Running on Full. He came so that we could live a full, whole, complete life. That's why he says in John 10 verse 10, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus doesn't want us living an incomplete or partial life. He doesn't want us running on empty. He wants us living a full life. And that's why we've been saying over and over again in this series that Jesus came so we could live healthy, engaged, authentic, and fully charged lives. But here's the thing, and we all know this, there's a lot of stuff in life that tries to rob us of living that type of life. In the first week in this series, we talked about pace, how if you live at an unhealthy pace, then that can rob you of the life that Jesus wants you to live. The second week in this series, we looked at the word people and how people have a tendency to rob us of life, especially those who are negative or those who are spiritually immature. They can rob us of the life that Jesus died for us to live. Last week, we looked at the word pressure because when pressure starts to mount up against us, it's easy to get distracted from the life that God wants us to live. And this week, we're gonna look at one more word that has the ability, has the tendency to rob us of life. And I think this word describes something that can rob us of life quicker and faster than anything else, and that's the word pain. Pain has the ability to rob us of the life that God wants us to live quicker and faster than probably anything else. I was reading a book this week, and it was talking about how there are more nearsighted, meaning people who can see up close but not far away, there are more nearsighted people living in New York City per capita than any other city in our country, and the author gives the reason why. Listen to what he says. He says, there are more nearsighted people in New York City than any other city in our country. Because of all the tall buildings, residents are hemmed in and their fields of vision are limited to short distances. They rarely have to use their sight for long distances, so their eyes adjust and grow accustomed to looking at what is right in front of them. And I think this can happen on a spiritual level if we're not careful. We get so focused on just what's right in front of us that we forget how to look beyond it. 
And when pain is constantly around us, when that's all we are ever seeing, it's easy just to focus on that and miss that we're living for something beyond the pain, that we're living for something greater. You see, what we need to understand is that the pain that we see around us is not all there is. But I'll be the first to admit that in the midst of pain, it's hard to see anything or anyone else but our pain. You all know this to be true. Pain has a pinch to it. And it can literally knock the wind right out of us. Pain is an experience that we all have in common. We've all been through it before. And some of you, some of you guys might be experiencing it right now. I mean, we all come from different backgrounds. We are raised differently. We have different interests, different hobbies, different things uh, that we share. We have different tastes and abilities. Even though we're all different in some way or another, one common experience that we've all been through is pain, is suffering. You might even say that we're all fluent in the language of pain. Pain is kind of a universal language that the entire human race understands. And if you don't believe me, let's do a little experiment. I'm going to put some painful experiences up on the screen. And if you don't care if you have experienced one of these experiences or if you know someone who's been through one of these experiences, just put your hand up in the air for everybody to see. So here we go. Here's our list. Bankruptcy, divorce, gossip, miscarriage, depression, loneliness, addiction, cancer, infertility, betrayal, family dysfunction, prison, failing health, terminal illness, false accusations, job termination, social rejection, disloyalty, severe injury, abandonment, loss of a loved one. If you know someone who's experienced one of these things or if you've experienced any of these things, put your hand up. Put it up real high for everybody to see. Some of you guys are putting up two hands because you've experienced multiple things on this list. You can put your hands down. What do all those hands mean? What do they represent? Guys, we're all in this thing together. We're not alone. All of us, you and me, we are all healing. We're all hurting. Pain is a language that we are all fluent in. Whether we like it or not, it's true. It's a common experience that we all share. And for me, one of the most powerful scriptures in all of the Bible, one of the best promises in all of the Bible is found on the very last page. In Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 and 4, it says, God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Speaking of when Jesus comes back, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. I love this promise And I look forward to this day. I look forward to the day when the curse will be reversed. I look forward to the day when all things will be made new. I look forward to the day when there will be no more suffering, no more heartache, no more sadness, no more crying, no more pain. I long for this day. But the problem is, there are certain days now when Revelation 21 seems really, really far off, really, really far away. So what do we do in the meantime? What do we do now? The Bible tells us what to do in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It says, we live by faith, not by sight. In other words, we don't live for just what we see around us. We live by faith. We live for something more. But I'm going to be transparent with you. 
I struggle with this verse. Especially when I'm surrounded by pain. I struggle with this. But I know it's what I need to hear. And it might just be what you need to hear today as well. I believe it's what the church has needed to hear ever since its existence, especially at the end of the first century. See, at the end of the first century, about 40 or 50 years after Jesus ascended into heaven, the church, the church was in a tough spot. This guy named Domitian became emperor of Rome, Caesar of Rome, and he was an evil dude, and he despised the church. Because he saw Christians as a threat to his power. He saw them as a group of rebels. And he was afraid that they were going to threaten his authority and the authority of Rome. So he made it very difficult to be a Christian toward the end of the first century. In fact, persecution became public policy. Christians were literally losing their lives simply because of their faith. Their homes were being burned and destroyed. They were losing their jobs. Their family members and friends were being thrown in prison, arrested. Things weren't looking real great for the followers of Jesus toward the end of the first century. And by the year 90 AD, all of Jesus' original 12 disciples, apostles, they had all been killed for their faith besides one. There was one of the original 12, one apostle still living. His name... John. And the Roman Empire wanted to kill him as well. They wanted to get rid of him. But here's the thing. Killing the other apostles hadn't stopped the growth of the church at all. And so the Roman government decided, well, we don't want to turn John into just another martyr that fires people up. So this is what we're going to do. We'll just remove him from the church. We'll exile him. We'll get him away from the rest of the followers of Jesus so that he doesn't have any influence anymore. And so they exiled him to an island prison called Patmos. Patmos was kind of the Alcatraz of their day. It's where you sent people who were the worst of criminals who you didn't want to kill for some reason or another. And once you were on Patmos, you never got off. John is exiled to this island prison, and as you can imagine, he's pretty discouraged. He's pretty down. And he knows that the church is also down across the globe. And that's why John writes to them in Revelation chapter 1. And he says these words to them. He says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering. They were fluent in the language of pain and suffering. In the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. See, John says, the reason why I'm in prison here is not because I did anything wrong. It's simply because I was testifying about Jesus, telling people about Jesus, and they put me here. John's down. John's discouraged. And while he's in prison, Jesus appears to him. And Jesus gives him this profound vision that he's to write down and send out to the churches throughout the world. And this profound vision that John saw and wrote down is what we now call our book of Revelation. Jesus wanted this vision to go out, not just for the churches in John's day, but for the church throughout the ages. Because he knows at times it's easy to get discouraged. I mean, imagine being a Christian living in the first century world. By all outward appearances, it looks as if evil is winning. It looks as if Caesar is more powerful than Jesus. 
It looks as if Satan is more powerful than God. It looks as if it's better to be on the side of the culture than to be on the side of the church. It looks as if darkness is winning all around them. And in the midst of a culture, in the midst of a world where it looks like darkness is winning, how do you continue to move forward? How do you keep going? And the church in the first century, they were struggling to keep going, to keep pressing on. In fact, when you read Revelation chapters 2 and 3, you find out that the church was in trouble. Jesus knows what's going on, and he calls some of those churches out because they were lukewarm, and they were giving up on their faith. They were getting ready to walk away from what they believed. They were starting to compromise with the culture. The church in the first century was in trouble. They were on the verge of throwing up their hands and giving up. And we can understand why. Because in the midst of pain, it's hard to see anything or anyone else but our pain. And so you know what Jesus does? He helps John and he helps the church see what they can't see right now. He helps them see what they should have been seeing all along. He helps them see past their pain. And what Jesus does is he takes John in a vision up into the throne room of heaven in order to witness, in order to see this cosmic worship celebration taking place. A worship celebration that is as big as the cosmos itself. And there John witnesses God Almighty on his throne. And he sees beings, both heavenly and earthly, bowing down, giving praise to God, shaking the very foundations of heaven and earth with their praise. John gets to witness this colossal cosmic worship celebration. And my question is, why? Why in the midst of pain did Jesus want John and the rest of the church to see this worship celebration? With all the pyrotechnics going on in the book of Revelation, and there's a lot of weird stuff happening in the book of Re Revelation, whether it's plagues or locusts or fire falling down from above or whether it's the horsemen of the apocalypse or whatever else. There's beasts and dragons and all sorts of stuff. And with all the pyrotechnics going on in the book of Revelation, it's easy to miss Well, one of the primary themes of this book is. There are more profound worship passages in the book of Revelation than any other book in the New Testament. Worship is one of the primary themes of this book. You know why? Because when you feel like worshiping the least is when you need it the most. See, the first century Christians didn't feel like worshiping. They were struggling. They were surrounded by pain. They didn't feel like worshiping. But what they didn't feel like doing is what they needed the most. In the book of Revelation, the whole point of it is to answer one primary question. And that question is not, when is the world going to end? Or when is Jesus going to come back? In fact, Jesus tells us not to worry about that. He says, times and dates, we're not to worry about that kind of stuff. Only God the Father knows when the Son is going to come back. We're not to worry about that stuff. We're just supposed to be faithful every single day of our lives. The question that the book of Revelation is trying to answer for us is not, when's the world going to end or when is Jesus going to come back? 
The question that the book of Revelation is trying to answer for us is this, who is really Lord? Is it Caesar or is it the Christ? Is it Satan or is it God? Is it darkness or is it light? Whose side should you be on? The side of the culture or the side of the church? The book of Revelation is trying to answer the question, who is really Lord? And we all know the answer. Intellectually, we get it, and the first century Christians knew the right answer in their heads. It's Jesus. Jesus is Lord. But how do you keep living like Jesus is Lord when Satan's out doing his thing? How do you keep living like Jesus is Lord when Caesar's out doing his thing? The answer? You worship. Because worship gives us unshakable hope in the midst of uncertain times. You see, in the presence of God, our earthly fears assume their proper size. In the presence of God, our earthly fears become frail and finite. Worship is what we need in order to continue to live like Jesus is Lord in the midst of a world that doesn't recognize him. And so that's why Jesus takes John up into this heavenly throne room of God. And I want to share with you what John sees. So Revelation chapter 4 is where we're going to be at. And let's start at verse 1. John says, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And John goes on to say, and the voice that I have first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Pause there for a second. What I want you to notice right off the bat is that the door to heaven is wide open for John and that matter for us to come and experience. John is getting ready to experience the fullness of God's presence on his throne. And I want to let you know something. Anytime in Scripture, Old Testament or whenever, whenever God's presence descended on the people like on Mount Sinai, whenever people got to witness the manifestation of God in a very physical way, they were always scared to death and they ran from him. In fact, on multiple different occasions, the people said, God, never show up like that again. They were terrified at his presence. But in this moment, we see God's full presence in his throne room, and God wants us there. He invites us in because this moment isn't to scare us or terrify us. This moment is meant to encourage us. Look at what happens next. At once, John says, I was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. Now, what catches John's attention right away? The throne in the center of this worship celebration, the one who was sitting on it. See, right off the bat, there's a lot going on in this passage. We're going to look at that here in just a second. But John's attention immediately goes to the throne and the one who was on it because his focus is on God. God is at the center of this worship service, and God is who John needs to see. He's who we need to see as well. And look at how John describes God. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Now, I think what John is doing here 
is he is stretching language to its limit. How do you describe the Almighty God? I don't think John knows how to do it, and he is trying his best to capture what he sees. This word jasper in the Greek, well, that's equivalent to a diamond in our terminology. So what he's saying here is God is sparkling. God is glimmering and gleaming. He's like a diamond. He's so beautiful. He's as beautiful as a precious stone. And then this word carnelian is equivalent to our ruby. So God is radiating with a red light of some sort in this moment, this beautiful red light. But then John kind of changes the imagery here, and he says, and a rainbow resembling an emerald. Now, rainbows typically don't look like emeralds that are green. Again, I think he's stretching language to his limit. He doesn't know how to describe God here. But he says, a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. So he switches from diamond to red ruby to all colors that are just encircling God's throne. If you will remember back from the Old Testament, the rainbow was a sign of God's promise that he will always keep his promise to his people. Look at what's going on. God's promise is encircling his throne. It's never ending. The circle will not be broken. God will keep his promise to his people, and his throne proves just that. Look at what else John sees. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. So who are these 24 elders that are seated on 24 thrones surrounding the throne of God? Well, you guys probably know this. In every local church, we have elders that shepherd our church, that oversee the leadership of our church. So I think what this passage is telling us is obvious. In the grand scheme of things, only 24 elders throughout all history are going to make it into heaven. That's what this is telling us right now. I'm kidding. That's a joke. Not really. That's a joke. It's a good preacher joke. Anyway, no, it's much bigger than that. Numbers are very symbolic in the book of Revelation. It's an apocalyptic book. Numbers always mean something. Number 24 is a multiple of 12. 12 always represents the people of God. There were 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament, 12 apostles who started the church, God's New Testament people. We have this multiplied by two because this represents all of God's people. We also know this for another reason, because it says that these 24 elders were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. Look throughout the book of Revelation, look throughout Scripture, and anytime you see people dressed in white, it means they've been made clean. Crowns on their head, they are victorious. This always represents the people of God. And then something else, just as a side note, there were 24 divisions of priests in the Old Testament. Who's referred to as the priesthood of all believers in the New Testament? Christians, the followers of Jesus, these 24 elders, there's more than 24, this is a symbolic way of saying all of God's people, Old Testament, New Testament alike, are gathered before the throne of the Almighty, worshiping Him. Look at what else John sees. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. This is letting us know that God is fully on the scene here. This, uh, this language about thunder and lightning, that should take us back to Mount Sinai when God ascended on the mount, or descended on the mountain. But also look at what it says here. It says that the seven spirits of God are present. Seven always represents completeness. God's full spirit, the Holy Spirit is fully present in this moment. God is completely and fully on the scene before his people. John goes on to say, also before the throne, 
there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. Now, what you need to know is that in the ancient world, the sea was always something that terrified people. It was the unknown. It represented chaos. That's why there are all these old legends of sea creatures and monsters and all that kind of stuff. The sea was seen as something very chaotic, but yet, look at the sea before God's throne. It's calm. It's still. It's as clear as glass. It is not something to be afraid of because in the presence of God, all chaos ceases. As we read on, we see John says, in the center around the throne were four living creatures. Now, the number four always represents the earth. Remember, there are four corners of the earth, four winds of the earth, four seasons on the earth. Four represents the earth. And we're going to see four living creatures that represent all living beings on the earth. And they were covered with eyes in front and back. The first living creature was like a lion, which represented the king of all the wild beasts in nature. The second was like an ox, which represents all the domesticated beasts on the earth, domesticated animals. The third had a face like a man, which represented all the human race. And the fourth was like a flying eagle, which represents all the creatures of the air and sky. What is John here saying? All of creation, all of creation, all of nature is bowing down in worship before God Almighty. And look at how all of nature worships God. It says, each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings, day and night, continuously. They never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and who is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, meaning the people of God, fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. This cosmic worship service is supposed to leave us speechless. It's supposed to take our breath away to see all these creatures, both human and heavenly alike, bowing down before God in worship, shaking the very foundations of heaven and earth with their praise. This moment isn't to scare us or terrify us. This moment is to leave us speechless in the presence of God. And God knows, Jesus knows, this is what we need. Because God wants to remind his people that this is what's real. What you see out there in the world, it's all fake, it's all phony. Caesar is only posing as king. Satan is only pretending to be God. The illusion that darkness is winning, it's just an illusion. None of that is real. What's really going on is the one who sits on the eternal cosmic throne is calling the shots and is in control. And all of creation will one day know it, but you know it now. And because you know it now and you see it now, the one who holds the cosmos in his hands should be the one who is leading and driving your life. In a previous life, I used to visit various churches 
Sometimes guests speak at them. And on more than one occasion, I would hear a well-meaning brother close out a worship service with this prayer or something like it. He would say, and now God, as we leave this place and we go out into the real world, be with us. And every single time when I would hear that phrase, I would cringe just a little bit. Because I would say, not so fast. That's not right. You got it backward. It's not what's out there that's real. It's what's in here that's real. What's out there is fake and phony. Out there, Caesar is only posing as king. Out there, Satan is only pretending to be God. What we do in here is what's real. And if you have trouble believing that, you're going to struggle to do the tough stuff that God is asking and calling you to do. Because the only people who can do the tough stuff that God is asking them to do in this world are those who see him clearly. And when I think about what this passage and others like it throughout the book of Revelation are trying to do, it gives me the chills. I mean, think about it. The Almighty God who created the heavens and the earth by merely speaking them into existence. The Almighty God who destroyed the earth by flood, who eliminated the Egyptian army by closing the Red Sea in on them, who has the power to knock down fortified walls, who has the power to defeat giants, who literally has the power to stop time. This almighty God who came as a man, who walked on water, who fed the multitudes, who defeated death on the cross. This almighty, all-powerful, omnipotent, this warrior God is on our side. And it's not just that he's on our side. He has a plan for your life. And he has a plan for mine. He's not done with us. He hasn't abandoned us. We have the promise that is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that says, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. God has a plan for us, and our pain is not without purpose. There is a plan that he is carrying out for you and for me. And that's why I love what happens next in Revelation chapter 5. We went through all of Revelation chapter 4, but I want you to notice what happens next in Revelation chapter 5 because I think it's even more significant. See, John is looking around at this throne room and he realizes that the one who is sitting on the throne, God himself is holding something. God is holding a scroll that is sealed, that is shut. 
And then John gets word that no one in the throne room is able to open up this scroll. This scroll represents God's decreed plan for the world, God's decreed plan for the human race. It's his plan to save us, to rescue us, to win the war against evil and darkness. That's what this scroll represents. And there's no one around who is worthy to open up this scroll. And John the apostle begins to cry and weep profusely in this moment because he begins to think, Will God's plan go unfulfilled? Will darkness really win? Will evil get the best of the church? John begins to cry because there's no one who is able to carry out God's plan. And then one of the elders comes and taps John on the shoulder, and look at what he says to him. He says, then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. And he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. You see, there's still one person we haven't met yet in the throne room of God, and that's Jesus. Jesus is the Lion of Judah. And this elder says, hang on a second, John. Don't weep. Don't get discouraged. There is one who is able to open up the scroll and carry out God's plan. And it is Jesus, the Lion of Judah. What you need to know is that in the ancient world, the lion was a symbol of power and strength and might. In fact, the lion was one of the symbols for Rome. You know, we have an animal that represents our country, right? The bald eagle represents our freedom. They had an animal that represented their empire, and it was the lion, a symbol of power and strength and of might. And remember, right now, John and his people, they are suffering at the hands of the Roman Empire. And so John is encouraged in this moment because he realizes, he's told, there's another lion that's more powerful than the Roman lion, the lion of Judah. And he's able to carry out God's plan. He's able to make sure that God's people are rescued and saved and taken care of. And so Revelation 5 says that John turns to see this mighty, fierce powerful lion of Judah. And when he turns to see this lion, we see, in my opinion, what is the most powerful verse in all the book of Revelation. And it's probably the most powerful verse in all of Scripture. Look at what John sees when he sees, when he turns to see this lion. Then I saw a lamb. looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne. John turns to see this ferocious, all-powerful lion, and when he turns, what does he see? A lamb, and not just any lamb, but a lamb that had been slain, a slaughtered lamb. Why? Why the change of imagery? Why are we built up to expect this lion? And all of a sudden, John turns and we see as well a slaughtered lamb. Because God's trying to teach us something here. God's trying to let us know something. He's trying to let us know that he's going to win this thing, but he's not going to do it as we expect. See, he's going to win this thing. He's going to win back his creation. But he's not going to do it with the powers of men. 
He's not going to do it with a lion that can match the strength of Rome. He's not going to do it with the weaponry of the human race. God's going to win this thing, and he's never going to have to fire a shot. God's going to win this thing with the relentless, self-giving, self-sacrificial love of the Lamb. Because any kingdom that is ruled by the sword is a fifth-rate kingdom, but a kingdom that rules men's hearts is a first-rate kingdom. God's going to win his creation back, but he's going to do it with his love. See, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not that God so loved the world that he wanted to usher in World War III. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that God so loved the world that he sent his son to die on a cross for you and for me. And by the blood of the Lamb, we will be victorious. And that's why all worship has to remain focused on the Lamb. Because when Satan's out doing his thing, It will be the love of God that motivates us to keep going. And it will be the love of God that we demonstrate and exhibit that changes the lives of those who are being tortured right now by darkness. About nine years ago, I experienced one of the toughest seasons in my ministry. I'm just going to be transparent with you. I was on the verge of giving up. Not because of anything that I had done, but because of a situation that our church, the church that I served at that time, found itself in. And I was scheduled to go to a conference at the school that I graduated from, the college I graduated from, for church leaders, and I didn't want to go. I wasn't in the mood. I was discouraged. I was down. Allison would tell you I was borderline depressed. She was worried about me. So she said, I think we need to go. We didn't have kids yet, and so she made me go. And we went to this conference, and I remember the first night the speaker spoke about God's love, and his message pricked my heart, but still, I didn't want to be there. And we ended that service with a time of worship. And so the worship leader asked everybody to stand up, and everybody came to their feet. And the first song started, and I wasn't singing. I was just staring at the screen, looking at it, waiting for the service to end. And then as I'm just standing there, Still, I heard something from behind me. It was a voice, a voice that was singing praise and worship to God, and this voice was belting it out. This man was singing at the top of his lungs, and it wasn't that good. He couldn't carry a tune in a bucket. But he was singing with all of his might, and I turned to look to see who was singing. And it was a man I recognized. I knew that that gentleman had just lost his wife about two months prior to that. And he was standing alone at this conference, probably for the first time ever. And yet he was singing praise to God as loud as he possibly could. And then I began to look around and I looked to my left diagonally and I saw one of my former professors and his wife. And this former professor of mine had just been diagnosed with terminal cancer about a year prior to that and he had been going through treatments 
And he was weak and he was frail. And yet as we were singing this song of worship, his weak, frail hand was in the air giving praise to God. And then I looked to my right. A few seats down, there was a little girl who had a cast on her arm. Obviously, she had broken her arm some way. She was about eight or nine years old, and she was singing, and she was as loud as anybody else. And she didn't know the words of the song. She was making up her own words, but it didn't matter. It was still praise to God. And she would put her one good arm up in the air, and then when she didn't have it in the air, she was patting her cast. And I remember in that moment as I looked around at all this pain that surrounded me, it hit me, as bad as it may seem, Satan isn't winning. As bad as things may look at times around us, God is still on the throne. And what we were doing in that moment, that was real. Everything else was temporary. Everything else was phony. Everything else was a result of a curse that will one day be abolished. What we were doing in that moment as we were giving praise to God, that was what was real. And in that moment, I began to sing and sing like I never had before. Praises to my God. Because when you feel like worshiping the least is when you need it the most. So right now, wherever you are, in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your suffering, be encouraged, O church. Be warned, kingdoms of men. Tremble in fear, Satan and your minions, because the great I am is on his throne, and his lamb is worthy to carry out his plan. Never, ever underestimate the lamb that was slain. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for this moment that we've had to open up your word. And I just pray that we would be a people that in the midst of our pain and suffering, that we would always look to the Lamb. May those words ring in our ears that John wrote, Then I saw a Lamb. And may his love carry us through our pain because we know we will be victorious with him. In the name of the Lamb, I pray, amen.